0: Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly Writers Club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the Classes tab.
1: I'm Allison Langer.
2: I'm Zaire.
1: I'm Andrea Askowitz. And this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. shit. (laughs) Never gets old. I know. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in.
0: Ah, this is our final episode. Uh, Ah, No, not ever. No, not ever. But in this 10-part series, I mean, I just have really enjoyed sharing the stories and talking about them with you guys. So it's kind of bittersweet, but I'm so glad that we got 10 episodes out into the world of these guys writing and sharing and stuff like that who are, you know, want to be heard. As you guys know, this whole series was inspired by the men I taught memoir writing in a men's prison. And, you know, we just really wanted their voices to get out into the world. They don't usually get heard, so thank you for listening to them. Zaire has been here co-hosting with us and contributing his feedback and commentary throughout the series, which has been invaluable. Zaire's a poet, musician, and teaching artist who teaches writing and poetry in school and juvenile detention facilities. He has also lent us his music for the series. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Zaire, for taking this journey with us.
2: Thank you for allowing me to take it with you.
1: Also, I just have really come to like this guy, Zaire. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It didn't take much.
0: (laughs) We came to like him, like, the first time he, like, popped onto the screen. I was
1: like, oh, hi. (laughs) I love, love having this poet's point of view. It's just been amazing. I want to say something before we continue, and I've said this on every episode, but what's interesting, I think, about podcasts is this might be the first time someone's listened. So I want to say it again. We don't want to sensationalize crime or sensationalize violence. And we want to be respectful of anyone who's been affected by violence. The whole purpose of this 10-part series is to share stories because we believe that sharing stories leads to understanding.
0: Yeah. And if it's something we need more of these days, it's understanding. On the very first episode in this series, which was episode 115, I went into detail about our motivation and hope for airing these stories. And I kind of briefly just touched on that again, but I told my whole story of meeting Too Tall and some of the other men that you've heard from in this series. So if you wanna start from the beginning, just go back to episode 115 and start there.
2: Today on our show, Richardson Francois, AKA Swa, will read his story, The Hate Hate Creates.
0: Okay, wait, I just wanna say before we get to Swa's story, I have to admit, like he is just one of my faves. Like he was one of my faves in the in the, in the class, I know we're not supposed to play favorites, but um <laughs> y- you know, I'm still back in high school, but he he did the work. When when students do the work and they try really hard and they come with like a really great perspective or like motivation or curiosity, it's just so much fun to work with them and that's what he did.
3: Oh yeah.
0: It was really really cool and and in fact when um he called and last night to record his episode, I, I I wanted to like, keep him on the phone and ask his opinion of what does it feel like to be edited? Because when he first called, it was really funny. And you'll hear some of this, but, um, he's like, uh, so I got my, my, my edited version. And I was like, "Uh Oh, what's wrong. And I said, I said, didn't change much. He goes, well, there was only one line that that changed. And, and so it was something, a question we asked him, about his conversation or a fight that he had with this guy. And I guess I changed a word or two from his response into the doc when I was trying to put it in. And it was so cute. He's like, but you and Andrea, I trust you if you think it's right. And I was like, absolutely not. What is it? How does it sound out of your mouth? Let's get it written in your voice. And he was so happy. It was so cute.
2: It's honestly, it makes, it makes the experience of teaching so much better when you have students that are actually like engaged and want to participate and want to, to learn what you're trying to teach. Because um, I had a group of high schoolers a few weeks back. It was an after-school program. They didn't sign up for it. So essentially, I was just making them write after school after they had just been writing. So they didn't want to do it. And then um, <laughs> last week, I had another group that actually like, they chose it they, like it was they had electives to choose from and they chose to be there. And just the difference that made having students that wanted to be there, that were actually interested in it, it, makes all the difference in the world.
1: Also, even when you have willing students, it's so rare that a student is like, OK, I trust my editors. That's so rare. I still
0: don't trust you completely. I, no. It's very <laughs> hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. We'll be back with Swa's story after the break.
2: We're back. This is Zaire and you're listening to Write A Class Radio. This episode is the last in a 10 part series inspired by the men that Allison taught memoir writing in prison. We chose this essay to come last because it reveals a racial undercurrent we all live with that infiltrates the justice system. Here is Swa reading his essay, The Hate Hate Creates.
3: My brother and I migrated from Haiti to the United States in 1985. He was 11 and I was 7. Our family resided in a little Haiti neighborhood in Miami. To use the phrase culture shop, that's the required expressive emphasis to describe most of my experiences. I was considered, sometimes even felt like an alien from another planet, rather than another country. This was a crucial period in my life. The language, the way of life, the arrogant bluntness, all this was foreign to me. It's often said that experience is the best teaching in life. And she came out to teach often during my early years in Miami. Nothing could have prepared me and my brother for the inhumane and cruel treatment from African-Americans toward Haitian migrants, which infused us with confusion Anxiety and hate. After a few months in the states, while playing soccer in front of our home, three kids about our age rode up on bikes. The leader of the trio was the skinny, dark-skinned kid who stood between the other two. He blurted out, "What the fuck y'all Haitians doing around here?" He took me and my brother by surprise with his brash disrespect. We didn't know the language well. But thanks to our father's everyday schooling of the English language, we clearly comprehended what the leader had said. Also, profane language is usually the first words of a foreign language, one learns. I blurted back, fuck you. They didn't take kindly to my words. They hopped off their bikes and closed the distance to where we were standing. More experience were shared during a minute long standoff. It seemed like they were trying to intimidate us more than anything. When they must have realized that me and my brother were not afraid, they got on their bikes and rode away while hurling more insults. That's why y'all Haitians need cat. Y'all Haitians need to move. This was one of the many incidents that became the norm. Three years after we moved to the United States, our house got broken into while we were playing in the front yard. The home invaders brazenly rushed out, shot in the air. Out of their car and sped away. I don't know their nationality, but they were black. After that, my dad moved us from Little Haiti to Northwest Miami. There I attended Webby Middle School where the harsh, the treatment of Haitian kids was just as bad. I noticed the better my grip on the English language, the less I got picked on. But my anger continued to fester. I hated witnessing other Haitian kids being called cat eaters and, and HBO. Asian body order, and getting beat up by the African-American kids. All through middle school and into my sophomore year in high school, I defended kids who were too afraid to defend themselves. This resulted in a lot of fights, suspensions, and finally getting expelled. By the end of my sophomore year, I dropped out. After running the streets pretty hard for about a year, I got arrested. I was charged with five armed robberies and faced multiple life sentences. At the age of 20, I was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in Florida State's prisons. When the judge said 40 years, the details of my case flashed in my face. The stupidity of wanting to commit a crime just for the sake of fast money, robbing a Kentucky fried chicken with a gun, and even though I did not fire the gun, there were two customers and three employees. There late that night on December 22, 1995. Now, I was staring at a good portion of my life behind bars. During my nearly 26 years in prison, I've noticed how not much has changed with the black on black experience between African Americans and Haitian migrants. With time to think and the ability to study, I have been able to delve into why this is. I've learned from author Edwidge Danticott, who writes about the Haitian struggle, Naim Akbar, whose texts speak on the self-destructive nature black race and where it stems from. Even Donna Gorms, the godfather of urban novels who wrote Kenyatta's last hit, which illustrated black-on-black black hate, I had developed a deep passion to find a remedy for this sickness. Though this passion couldn't stop me from getting involved in many wars between African-Americans and Haitians that took me from the streets into prison. One incident happened between me and a dude I considered to be a good friend at the time. I'll call him Jay. Jay is African-American, and we're both from Miami. But this same war has caused many fatalities on both sides. So we should have known the ramifications behind using racial epithets to greet each other. Whenever he would say fucking Haitian, I would say fucking yank. A term of disrespect used against each other on the streets. We did this sort of as a joke, but with all jokes... There was a seed of truth planted within. Over time, the friendship grew sour and reached a boiling point. We were playing cards with a few other dudes when an argument broke out between us. Jay got up from the table for about five minutes, so I kept dealing the cards. Bruh, I told you I was coming. You didn't have to deal around me, Jay said. I said, we weren't going to keep waiting on you. Jay said, making me miss a hand is like making me miss money. Fuck-ass Haitian. I said, fuck you, fuck-ass gang. I was thinking but didn't say, you think you're special. Just expect everyone to wait for you. You think you're better than blacks that are not born from this country. That's when he caught me with an unexpected blow that spit my bottom lip and had me bleeding. My quick reaction helped me land on myself, but after locking up, his 210 pounds proved to be too much for my 180. Other people jumped in the fight. There was a Haitian side versus an African-American side, and both sides were in a frenzy. The fight got broken up by some of the dudes who were playing cards with us. Due to the many blind spots in the dorm, the corrections officers didn't see the fight. I spent most of that night reflecting on the situation in the minute before that. It's the racial caste system. And just like all caste systems, the subordinate caste is taught to build a caste system amongst themselves. It's usually through colorism. However, in Miami, where there are many different cultures of African descent, the African-Americans take the hard road as the dominant caste amongst the blacks. So just as they were oppressed, they have learned to oppress. I realized what happened was bound to happen sooner or later because of all the horseplay playing a name calling between us. I knew better. So it was also my fault. Many of the old heads had warned me of this type of behavior way back in the county jail, when old wounds were open and long-suppressed emotions found their way home. I had just lost a good friend over nothing. It became clear to me that ignorance is the seed from which hatred's destructive fruits grow. The ignorance that I'm supposed to hate someone because they're not patient or that African-Americans are supposed to hate me, this ignorance is taught at home or on the streets. I learned hate on the streets. I suspect some parents do teach hate because parents learn the to hate too. According to an article I read in Ebony Magazine several years ago, most people of African descent suffer from post-traumatic slave syndrome, a psychological disorder that is a product of the slave and master dynamic. The malice, the poverty, and inhumane nature that existed in the minds and members of the slave masters permeated the minds and members of the slaves. Whites who are indoctrinated with this racist belief express their hatred towards blacks, while most blacks express their hatred towards themselves. The effects of slavery, like the institution itself, is self-perpetuating in its evolution. During slavery, almost every ounce of self-love was squeezed out of the slaves and replaced with the self-destructive force of self-hate. African-Americans' cruel treatment of Haitian migrants stems from the same hatred that all Blacks, whether Haitian, Jamaican, Bahamian, Black, Latino, Africans from the homeland, suffer from and have been indoctrinated with. I suffered from this disease for a very long time. Hatred, expressed as racism, is a mental neurosis that affects our subconscious more than anything. Racism is a mental illness Characterized by severe distortion of thoughts, perceptions, and feelings. Well, if we can't prejudge someone and look upon them with incense without ever learning about the individual, then something is very wrong with our perception. In her documentary, The Pieces I Am, Tony Morrison said, quote, the people who practice racism are bereft. There is something distorted about the site. It's a huge waste. And it's a corruption and a distortion. It's like it's a profound no Nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. It has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people as it does on black people. End quote. People of all races have been fighting this battle against racism since the inception of the disease. But our methods have not been effective. We're engaged in a battle against a deadly disorder that should be labeled and diagnosed as such. This disease is not discriminate; It permeates the minds of everyone. It attacks the old just as it does the young. My three-year-old niece, who is biracial, recently told her mom, my sister, that she is white and her mother is black. This is a three-year-old child who already has some sort of cognizance about the realities of race and its effects. Angela Davis says, we have to talk about liberating minds as well as liberating society. And I'll say, it's impossible for us to liberate society if we don't first liberate our minds of this deadly disease. It took being locked up for me to realize the healing and the change starts with me.
2: one, I love this essay. I thought it was very beautifully written. The things that stood out to me, I, I saw a lot of, I guess, parallels between my life and his from like an early stage, you know, you know, migrating from another country, having to adjust to a new style of living, uh, so to speak. And one thing that popped in Wait, my head. Where,
1: where did you come from?
2: Uh, I was born in England. Oh, yeah. And that's that's the thing. So it's like, It's not even like I was coming from like a similar situation as him, but the experience as he was describing, it felt the same. I wasn't learning another language, but I was definitely learning another language, if that makes sense. Trying to adjust to how people talk here, you know, different colloquialisms. How old were you? I was, I was about the same age as he was when he moved, when he moved there 11. It was really weird listening to that. I was like, man, this is, this sounds like me. And one thing that I wrote down that was evident throughout the entire essay is people don't like different. I came here with a British accent. I went to one school. I got harassed, bullied, beat up, picked on. I went to another school. And because I've known from a very young age that I wanted to be an actor, when I moved to a different school, I just started talking like this. I didn't let anybody know I was from another country. I just adopted the accent to, to hide it. And that's, you know, obviously something that he talked, he talked about um, as well as is, is he learned the African-American way of speaking. You know, he got picked on less and less. And it's a very real thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, you hid your accent because <laughs> British accents are so adorable.
2: And not in middle school. <laughs> middle school, they get you beat
1: up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God.
0: Just before we go, you mentioned that Swa was eleven. He was actually seven. His brother was eleven. So I just want oh, to clarify okay. yeah. that. And and also, I, I wanted to say that uh, you know I know that the sound was a little difficult in case any of our listeners were like, "What's the noise in the background?" But that you can't tell somebody to stop talking. And hey, we're recording. No one cares in prison. You just get what you get. So I was so grateful he just powered through, and hopefully it wasn't too distracting. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, there were certain parts where it was a little louder than than others, but those parts were few and far between. I pretty much could hear the most of the okay. most of the essay.
1: I I mean, thanks, Zaire, for that personal connection to this story. So I thought the writing was so beautiful. Like right from the beginning, there was something he said that made me from the beginning trust this guy's like philosophical musings, like the trust the way he thinks. And it was when he was talking about like. Experience is the thing that helps you learn. And then he wrote something like she, he called experience she. like She she, came to come back. She came
0: often or something like that.
1: Yeah. It's often said that experience is the best teacher in life. And she came out to teach often during my early years in Miami. That's so nice. Mm -hmm. So now he's going to tell us about his experience and what it taught him. Um, He did a really good job of telling and then showing. So he talked about how confusion, the hate he felt brought up confusion, anxiety, and hate. And then he showed right after that, this scene where these kids came up on their bikes and they were like, what the fuck are you Haitians doing around here? He showed them being mean. And then he got, and this was something that I asked for in the edits. I wanted to really see what African-Americans thought of Haitians and the part about like Haitians eat cat. I was like, what? What is that? That's why yeah, Haitians eat cat. I was like, oh my God, that's so rude and ugly. And then the other rude, ugly thing that he heard was Haitian HBO, Haitian body odor. I mean it was awful to hear these things, but it gave me a really good sense of what kind of hate this narrator was experiencing so i I thought that was really well done because then there was one part that um, that I want to talk about later, which is about the way all of the um not all but I've heard this in a few of the stories in this in this series, and this part. When the narrator was talking about his crime, I always want to reword their um, language, because I feel like they write it in this very passive way. And this narrator did that. Five armed robberies. I was found guilty. like i I know it's the language of the criminal justice system. It's the language of sentencing, but I want in the story in a story, for a narrator to just say, I don't know, I just want it to be direct. You want them to take responsibility for what happened. I, and I think the narrator does, but I don't hear it in the language and that's what I want. And that's just something that I do want to talk about later probably like when we talk about the whole series. Because this story is really not about his crime, but it bugged me. So I'm just going to note it. Because I want to trust everything about this narrator and when when I hear a narrator sort of speak in like this thing happened to me. No, I was the one who held the gun five times and robbed people.
2: I I get what you're saying because we have heard that in in many, if not all of the stories that we've heard so far. But with this one, I feel like it works. And the reason why I feel like it works is because a prevalent theme in this essay is this thing called code switching. Essentially, what that is, is um, what I was talking about, how how we talk to people depending on who we're talking to. But that's what that is in that sense. You know, the, this is okay. Now I'm talking about the case. Now I'm talking about the crime. I have to. I have to code switch. I have to translate this in the way that is best understood for everybody. Then when I go back to talking about my experiences, now I'm going to go back to talking, talking about talking of how I talk, because that's how I communicate this. And I feel like that works with this essay perfectly. And I feel like it works better than it does with with others because that, that theme is already there.
1: I love, love that take. You are extremely generous, Sair. And I get it. And I wish then that the narrator had said, this is code switching. I'm going to speak about my crime the way I've learned to speak about it.
0: But that is so literal. That's very you to ask for that. No one in their right mind is going to put that in an essay. It sounds ridiculous.
1: No, I feel like this narrator, because he knew that he was speaking the way that he was speaking I mean, he changed the way he spoke.
0: I think what Zaire is saying is that when you're writing an essay, you're writing as a writer, right? You're not going to use too much slang. You're not going to be like uh, talking so much in first person. You're going to make it general so that everyone can understand. As I'm talking about my case, it's always talked about in that person, that sort of um, lawyerly. It's distant. Uh, distant. Yeah. And what I think would have been better instead of saying I'm about to code switch is to just to write like he speaks and just to put it down on the page as if he's talking to his best friend. That's what I wanted. Right. And so, but both sides are here, you know, when you're sort of writing for an article, it's, it's rare that, well, maybe it's not rare, but it just, you don't ever see that.
2: That's the thing. See with, with code switching, like it's not something that's talked about. It's, it's an unspoken thing. It's like, so my mother's side of my family is from Jamaica my grandmother was born in Jamaica and she has a heavy Jamaican accent. My mother was raised in England for the most part she, she has a British accent. When I talk to my mother, I start speaking with a with a British accent sometimes. When I talk to my grandmother, I start speaking with a Jamaican accent. I'm not telling them that I'm going to do that because that's not it's not something that you do. It's just it's just an instinctive innate thing.
1: Yeah. I get it. Yeah, very good point. I actually think that maybe this story would have worked without any and why do we need to know about his crime actually?
0: I thought it was really important. I think in every story, it's always important to to say what his crime is. Otherwise people are like, well, what happened to this guy? What's he doing in prison? And it's really hard to focus on the story if you're wondering like, well, how did he even get there? I need to trust him
1: and I need him to reveal that to me. Well, this is the one part I thought he could have done better in terms of the trust. Thanks for letting me say that because I do respect and admire this piece. It's really smart. And then he shows us how he learned theory. This is also a hard story to write because it's it's theoretical and, and that's hard to follow, but I did not have any trouble following it. So he talks about trying to find a remedy for hate, which he calls a sickness. He calls mental illness. He uses Toni Morrison and other great thinkers to back up his theory. Awesome. And then he talks about like the like the history of hate. Oh, this is another thing that I thought was really gorgeous in terms of writing. Like he and his friend were playing cards and they were joking around with each other in this way that they always joked around. But then he said that there's a seed of truth in every joke. And then he brought back that seed image later when he talked about the ignorance grows and grows. It's that seed that grows. I just thought that was, again, like really, really good writing.
0: You know, I had never heard of the post-traumatic slave syndrome. Is that true? Is that, is that, I mean, I believed him because he's done all this research and he's noted all these people. It's obvious that he's read up and he knows his shit. So I totally trusted him a hundred percent, but no one's ever talks about this. Like I, not even Michelle Alexander, I feel like in her book, I mean, maybe I missed that part, but in the new Jim Crow, it talks about the history of. The incarceration, the the carnal system, and, and a lot of the history. But post traumatic slave syndrome—that was like really the first time I've heard of that. Have you guys heard about that before? Yeah,
2: I mean, one one thing that's repeated, you know, in a, in a lot of conversations I have, you know, regarding this area is trauma is hereditary. What ancestors go through, you you don't have to go through it directly. It affects you because how however they reacted to it it reflects in how they raise their children and then how those children raise their children. And it trickles down to you. You're not experiencing the trauma firsthand, but you're definitely experiencing the effects of it. And that influences your reactions to certain situations.
1: I've never heard the term post-traumatic slave syndrome, but I agree with Zaire and I understand the evolution or the, like, the way that trauma is born into your cells. And this narrator used the three year old already wanted to be white. I mean, that was a, a very excellent way to show the effects of how racism goes, trickles down generation to generation. Well, did she want to be white or she just felt like she was white because I've got that she was choosing to be white. What did you get Zaire?
2: Let me see. Is that right there? three-year-old niece who is biracial recently told her mom that she is white and her mother is black. Um, I mean, I guess you could see it, see it both ways. What I get from that is basically just, you know, when you're, I don't know what, what she looked like, but you know, when you're biracial and you have a white father and a black mother and you see yourself, you know, lighter than your mother, then you lean more towards you know, being white until you're met with, you know, people who don't see you as white. And that's where that conflict comes.
0: I mean, I find it really hard to believe that that three year old was choosing to be white because she knew, you know, maybe life would be easier or she would run into. I don't know. I mean, how do we know that?
1: I'm pretty sure that's what the narrator intends. The next line is this is a three year old child who already has some sort of cognizance about the realities of race and its effects. I think
0: he's projecting.
2: It, it it may very well be projecting, but it also is very possible because I've I've literally seen it. <laughs> um, you know, from that early of an age and even earlier. You know, people notice these things, especially children. Mm.
1: Look, I I don't want to make this about me at all, but um, but I will tell you that I've had this experience myself. Okay, so I am Jewish. And I don't even think of myself as Jewish at all. And then when I first met my wife, I went to her house and she's Roman Catholic. And she had like big old crosses and statues of Mary. And I literally felt scared. Why? I don't know. But I thought about it a lot. And I've thought about why do crosses scare me? And I really feel like there's something deep, deep, deep inside me you know, not a conscious feeling, but there's something because Christians have killed Jews historically. That's just something that that's in me. I've worked through it with my wife. I mean, and I don't mean to make a joke out of it, but I really felt it. No, no, no. It's the
0: unknown. It's the unknown. I mean, even in class, I would sit and I would ask the guys like, you know, if it hadn't been for this class, I'd never know you. And they're like,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true. It's not the unknown. I think it's post-traumatic slave syndrome. It's there's trauma within me because I'm Jewish and I'm 99% Ashkenazi. Like my being is so Jewish, even though culturally, I'm not really, I'm I'm culturally Jewish, but I'm not, I don't practice, but I am, I'm a descendant of Jews who've been persecuted forever.
0: But so what he says here in in this, just to turn it back to the story real quick, is that because of that, he feels that whites have taken taken this further and take their sort of anger out on other on blacks because they are seen to be lower in the caste system but blacks they take it out on each other in their own system is that true you know we see it in neighborhoods and stuff but why is that true but, you know, SWA is telling us it's, it's something that's beyond us. It's, it's a psyche towards sort of post-traumatic slave syndrome situation about why that is.
2: Basically, what it is, is I see people treating me like this and I have to find some sort of outlet. So I'm going to find someone that's, quote unquote, on a lower standing than I am. and I'm going to release it to them and they can deal with it now. It's a loaded question.
1: So how do we fix this? Yeah. But what I like about this narrator is he actually is saying he recognizes that he's participating in this hate, hate back and forth. And he wants to stop. He, he realizes that he was throwing back hatred against his friend, lost his friend for no reason. And it took him to being locked up to realize that the healing and the change has to start with him. I'm, I'm, I'm taking that to mean that he's going to try to be more open and accepting of other black people who are not Haitian. I think that's what he said. But
0: I don't think it's even accepting. It's that it's the power struggle between races, caste systems, the whole thing. And that's why I'm saying, like I said in the beginning, it's sort of something we all struggle with because we're born thinking that we're great listen, I used to drive down to that neighborhood where he grew up in Westview. And this sounds so snobby, but so we were a member of a country club down the street. And I remember my parents like, okay, lock your doors. This is not a good neighborhood. And I was like, okay. And we just went along with our lives. And it's like, why, why is our world set up in in that sort of a caste system? where? We need to be afraid of each other. And how do we not be afraid of each other? How do we learn to get along and love each other and understand each other without name calling, without
1: hate? How are we ever going to get past all this? I think we're talking about two things here. like, And that is, like you learned from your parents, this idea that that neighborhood was bad. I think you're going to have to teach your kids differently. And that's one way. And we have to like sort of challenge, like I did, like this Narrator is doing challenge the internal ideas that that we have based on the reality of what's in front of us.
2: My whole thought process behind that is, you know, you can attempt to reach a a large group of people and try and educate as much as possible. But in all honesty, the easiest and hardest way to to change this is for everybody to focus on one person and that person being themselves. And for everybody to take that inward look and, and try and address you know the biases that they have, what experiences have taught them that may not have been the right lesson or they might may not have taken the right notes, uh, so to speak. Like I said, it's the easiest way because if everybody does it, then everything's fixed now. But it's the hardest way because everybody's not gonna do it.
1: That was beautiful. I love that, Zaire Frick. Thank you. Can we talk really quickly about the questions you asked, Swa, at the end? Yeah.
0: I just wanted to ask you just to comment a little bit on the process of writing this, because I I just want our listeners to understand, well, what is it like working on an essay while you're incarcerated?
3: Working on an essay while you're incarcerated, first of all, if it's your passion, it's the joy you feel me, just the process, there's not many productiveness, you know what I'm saying, going on in prison, you feel me, and even me, like for me, for example, I'm in a re-entry dorm where there's supposed to be a lot of productiveness, but prison is prison, you know, even though when you have certain dorms, that's supposed to feel like as in inmates are held to a higher standard, you know, there's still a lot of foolishness and ignorance going on. If I'm working on an essay, though, I'll set aside two or three hours in the morning. I'll work on it then. And by, by the time I'm through doing that, it probably be lunchtime. And after lunch is count time. And I'll probably get some sort of, like, physical activity exercise in, And then come later on that night, around 7, 8, I'll work on it again for like another two, three hours. And I'll do that until it's finished. But at the same time, I've been done uh, revise the piece probably like three or four times. I mean, revising it isn't totally write it over. So I'll do that like three or four times, or maybe even more than that, until I feel like, you know, I like it, and it's a finished product. That's how the process goes, on you know what I'm saying, for me
0: good and
3: what does it feel like to get edits
0: it feels
3: good no don't lie no i'm not i'm not uh believe it or not you feel me and the reason it feels good because i know you and i trust you you feel me you know to a certain extent i trust andrea and the reason i trust her because you trust her you know and because you speak highly of her you feel me and like i said being that i've known you and i've known you for a while now i, I feel like you know me and, and understand me and basically you understand what it is it is and what type of message that i want to put forth and so that's why i, I trust the editing process also you know what i'm saying the person that's editing it you know i trust you know and i consider them a close friend
0: Thank you. That's really nice. Thank you. I, I hate getting edits sometimes, and I really want to kill Andrea. So I'm, I'm grateful to hear that you are a little bit less, like, angry with me. Um, you know, my red pen sort of is uh, sometimes not so well received. Yes, you're with me. pen. But we only went back and forth on this maybe, you know, twice. I'd say just asking. Twice, no. No longer.
3: <laughs> we went back and forth on this at least about five, six times. We did. <laughs> yes, we did.
0: Oh gosh, well, you did a great but, um, job. Well, oh, no, I, I, I enjoyed it and I learned from it.
1: For one, I am extremely impressed with his work ethic. He described how difficult it is for anybody. I mean, I felt him like two to three hours in the morning. He works on his stories. There's so much stuff that he has to do. And then he goes back in the evening and works again for a few hours. He does that back and forth, back and forth. It sounds like it took weeks to get this story out. I'm just impressed. It's so difficult to write a story that's really good. And he showed us the process within Prison.
2: To add to that, it 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 was a lot. And you know, he, he went over his process and you're listening to it and you're like, wow, this is this sounds like it must have taken a lot of, out of him. But he also prefaced it by saying, if it's your passion, it's a joy. That's what I really took away and what I really loved about it, because yes, you know, he's in prison. He has all this running around to do all of these adversarial things coming at him, but it's his passion. So he takes joy in it. And that's what I feel like is the best takeaway from learning about writing. If you really enjoy it, then you're going to enjoy it regardless.
1: The other thing that I thought was so interesting and awesome was the way that he said that he trusts Allison. And um, and I'm saying that because it is so difficult to trust editors. And I'm I teach two classes a week, and sometimes students just really chafe against the edits that come from me and come from the other students in the class. This guy, though, he knows that what the editors want is really just what's best for the story. And that is a really hard thing to remember when you're taking edits. So thank you, Swa, for for remembering that. The
0: other thing I wanted to mention was and it's not just swa it's many of the guys in there they want to rewrite everything and they they don't have computers right so they're not like oh let me move this around it's constantly rewriting the tediousness of or tedium whatever the word is of hand by hand yes and the paper and the pen and nothing is like oh let me go to target and just get this for five cents i mean like everything costs a fortune They know they're sucking their family dry of money, you know, while they're sitting in here for 26 years. I mean, it just goes on and on. And every time I say, just just write on the back or write on a scrap or something, you don't need to rewrite the whole thing. They do it anyway. They don't want to give me something they're not proud of. They've been so beaten down that they don't even see the good. Like I'm like, you're amazing, you're amazing, everything is good, but they they only focus on like what they're doing wrong.
1: isn't that true for most people? Yeah, it is.
3: Yeah. So
0: I was just so impressed. You know, you feel me, you feel me. I just was so happy he said those. I was like, that's who he is, you know. He's a person who really, he's so much emotion in everything he says and does.
2: You know what I found funny was the fact that. He was talking about how he didn't mind the edits and he trusts and he loves it. And which is all true. But then he was very aware of how many times you had to go back and forth. Though
1: <laughs> I know you're like two or three times. He's like, uh, no, no, no. Five, six times. <laughs> like you came back at me. You came back at me like, yeah,
0: <gasps> I said, I kept blaming it on you, Andrea. I was like, well, to Andrea, you know, she's a little crazy. She just needs a little more.
1: And he still trusted me. Awesome.
0: I wanted to ask you guys also, just since this is our last episode, maybe just a, a couple tidbits, just a few minutes, because I know this is probably going on too long. But like w- from beginning to end, what has this series taught you or how have you changed because of hearing these stories and, and you know, hosting these these episodes?
2: Well, not even my biggest takeaway. I think how this series affected me is it inspired me to continue on a process on a road that I was already heading down. As we know, um, when we got started, when we were talking a little bit about getting to know each other and how I mentioned, you know, working in juvenile facilities and whatnot, it was something that I had done, but it wasn't something that I was sure about continuing. And just hearing these stories, you know, every every week, it was just like, yeah, this is this is why I was doing it. You know, this is this is the reason why. You know, I was going into these places because I want to try and help make a difference for people that are very close to ending up in these same situations and who don't have a lot of these facilities, who don't have, you know, an Allison coming in to, you know, teach them memoir writing. I want to be that. I think I may have mentioned this the last time we spoke. I'm not sure. But after we had recorded an episode I went shopping with my mom and um, we had just gotten something to eat as we were walking out of the, the restaurant, there was a man standing on the side of the road with a garbage bag full of clothes. And he had mentioned how he had just been released from prison and he wasn't even from Florida. He had got transferred to a prison in Florida and got released in Florida. Didn't have any family, no phone. And they just said, here, here's your stuff have a nice life. And that's how we're treating people. Like, I understand that it's people that, you know, have committed a crime. But if we're saying that the the time that they spend in prison is their penance for that crime, then once we leave, can we start treating them like human beings again? Because that really bothered me. The fact that they just threw him out on the side of the road in a state that he'd never been in outside of prison. And it was like, don't come back.
0: How can you not come back? What are you supposed to do?
2: Exactly. And that's what he was saying to me. He was like, I was just really, I've been out here for for days, just trying to get to a shelter, just trying to raise money so I can get a bus to get to a shelter. And I was really just sitting here thinking, man, I should just rob somebody. And you guys were the first people to stop and talk to me. I was like, that's what we're putting people through you know, we we question why people go to such lengths. They don't have any other choice because people aren't being human beings.
0: I, I was surprised to see hear Swa say that that reentry was not much different from the, the general population. You know, they've moved him into reentry because he's he has a release date actually in December of 2022.
1: So explain that because I what does that mean, reentry? Like he's in a separate so usually re-entry,
0: they start giving you tools to get back into the world. They start teaching you a trade. I know another guy, he's he's at a different facility than Swa, and they've taught him how to drive a semi truck. So he's already starting to make money. He's sort of like they ease you back in with some way of making money. And in Swa's situation, I mean, maybe they'll start that soon. I, I can't imagine why once you're there, they don't start that. Maybe it's because he's getting shipped out. I mean, he's working with an immigration attorney now that I've connected him with, but, you know, he committed a crime of moral turpitude is what they call it. It's like a violent crime. And because of that, even though his entire family are citizens here now, they're going to send him out. A judge cannot even say, oh, I see what's going on. He's fighting it. But there's a very small chance that he's going to get to remain in this country because the the laws changed a bunch of years ago. And that's how it works. And it just breaks your heart. So I don't know if they're just saying, well, he's not worth our time. We're, he's, he's leaving here anyway. So I'm not really sure what's going on
1: there. That means that he's going to be shipped back to Haiti.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And is Haiti going to accept
0: I don't know. I mean, that's part of his case. Like, can they prove that that's dangerous for him? But it's exactly what you're saying, Zaire. You can't throw somebody out without family or a place to stay. Like, you really have to work a little harder. Our system has to work a little harder, especially if people have been down for a long time. I mean, it's one thing if you're gone for a year, you come back, you sort of take up your life. But for SWAT, 26 years, there was no internet. There there were no cell phones. There were no computers. Like, what? And now he's supposed to just dive right back in and get a job and be uh, like a, an asset to society. Who's going to give him a chance? It's, it's terrible. The United States has a terrible system.
1: Well, one of the things that I've learned over the course of this 10-part series is how terrible the system is. I don't know how much I knew about it before, but like I've learned that there's 2 million people. 2 million in the United States prison system. Yeah. That is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard in my life. And I've also learned that that sentences in the United States are way too long compared to other countries like the Netherlands like their Norway. Their 4 years is their you know average or Supp- supposedly Norway has the best system.
0: Only like the worst crimes in the whole wide world are 20 years. Like you would never that it, this is, that's the like minimum around here. So, and they really see it as longer sentences and, and people getting involved in the system. They see it as a um, insecurities basically in their own system because if they're failing people, then they need to fix the system. So they're not failing people.
1: That's so beautiful. That is not the way the United States. So I'm- And they help you while you're in prison. They teach
0: you, they train you, they give you classes. They make you, They your rehabilitation is a thing where they really try to get you back into society as a, a mentally strong and stable person. And in this country, they beat you down until by the time you get out,
1: good luck to you. Right. So I have learned that in this country, prison is an extension of slavery. I've learned that. It's totally racist. It's ugly. It's, uh, it's a business. It's an enormous, enormous, horrible problem. I don't know that there's much positive spin that I could put on that after that. But I have learned that there are people like Allison who are going to do things like raise a ton of money to help a, a prisoner, a person, a friend of hers, one of our students, get a lawyer so that he can get out. And I don't know the complications of Tutal's case, but I do know that lawyers have told us that he should not be in there anymore. He has served his time. So, and there's a bunch of people that have in the course of like putting out this GoFundMe campaign, like I've been sending emails and Alice, you've been sending emails. So people are like, whoa, I'm going to, this is bad. I want to help you. And I was surprised people that I've known my whole life who are like lawyers now, or like connected to justice. I'm, I've been so amazed at the support that we've gotten for too
0: It's beautiful. There are so many people really trying to change the system. So if we pay attention, we'll find those people. There's a podcast called Pursuing Justice by the Innocence Project. The woman Harriet Hendel who is on there is wonderful. And the people who come on are talking about things that they're doing to change the system and it's it's gorgeous. I mean, there are a lot of people who care. So the more I've learned, the more I've my mind has been open to like various things. In DC, they have um It's this thing called the Second Looked Project. And they're looking at people who have served at least 20 years. And they're looking at their sentence and what their crime was and everything. And they're reevaluating and they're letting people out. They're like, this is ridiculous.
1: Right. Because we've also learned that people grow out, age out of crime. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. So I've learned a ton. I've learned that these are people who've made mistakes. I've loved their stories. I've learned that they are hardcore artists. I mean, yeah. God, look at Swap. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, there's many more like him.
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody who's who contributed to our series. And
0: if they're set up for success, there's no way they're not going to achieve it. I believe that
1: 100%. Based on how hard they've tried writing these stories.
2: I think this is a, a very good um, episode to wrap up on. Um, I feel like it encompassed everything that we've gone over throughout the, throughout the series. One thing uh, I wanted to mention, I'm not, I don't have the quote exactly because I picked up on it late from Swa's uh, essay when he says, um, "Ignorance is the seed from which hate grows." I feel like that that is, in a sense, what this is all about: ignorance of what these prisoners are going through, ignorance of how life in prison affects them, ignorance of how life before prison got them there, you know, ignorance of how, you know, the justice system isn't really a system about justice. Sometimes I feel like when, when we tackle that ignorance with things like, you know, writing class radio with, um, different organizations or whatever it is that's meant to educate when we tackle that ignorance and when we, you know, expel some of that ignorance, that's when, you know, we were able to create some of that change that we're looking for.
0: This officially concludes our prison series. That does not mean you're not going to hear any more stories by men and women in prison because we are very open to more stories. We want to share your words. If you are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated or have a loved one who is impacted by the criminal justice system, we always want to hear from you.
1: Thank you, Richardson Swa, for sharing your story. Thank you for listening.
0: This series is dedicated to Luis Aracena who lost his beautiful life to asthma while incarcerated. You are in our hearts and will be remembered forever.
1: Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, Zaire, me, Andrea Askowitz, and by Matt Kundel, Evan Serminski, and Courtney Fox at the Sound Off Media Company. Music by Zaire and Marnino Toussaint. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place in our three-part video series for just $50. Click video classes on our website. If you wanna be part of the movement that helps people understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, I will answer all your publishing questions. For $25 a month, you can join Allison's first draft Weekly Writers Group, where you can write and share your work. That happens Tuesdays from 12 to 1 Eastern. Go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday, so listen for us.
2: There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story.
3: What's yours?
0: Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.
3: It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.